0: 93X presents the Celebration Rock Podcast with Stephen Hayden. This is the Celebration Rock Podcast presented by 93X FM here in Minneapolis. I'm your host, Stephen Hayden. My guest today is Steve Gorman, drummer for the Black Crows, one of my favorite bands of the 90s. A band that I think does not get its due, not just as a great rock band, but as a great sort of story in rock history. you know they really were the most rock and roll rock and roll band of their era especially in a time in the 90s where a lot of rock and roll bands were sort of uncomfortable with the aspects of rock stardom this was a band that sort of epitomized what rock bands are or what they're supposed to be this sort of badass gang of people that go across the country and they do drugs and they drink a lot and they play badass riffs and they're they're tough guys (laughs) almost like the wild bunch you know cowboys that kind of thing that's what the black crows were and uh i think they're a fascinating band And, and and steve is one of the core members of that band along with the robinson brothers chris and rich and um i got to know steve actually about four years ago, we met on Twitter, and I forget how this worked exactly. I think he started following me, and then I followed him back because I realized, Steve Gorman, where do I know that name? And I was like, he's the drummer in the Black Crows. And then we started DMing back and forth, and he had read some things that I had written, that, and he liked them, and I said, well, I've liked your band since I was like 11 years old. You know, I bought Shake Your Money Maker, the first Black Crows record. I remember buying that at Kmart. Uh, with my allowance money, you know, because they were a big band. You know, they were a multi-platinum band. That first record had spawned She Talks to Angels and Hard to Handle, that Otis Redding cover, and Jealous Again and Twice as Hard, all these big radio songs. Um, You know, Black Crows were this band in the 90s that... They really were a bridge band between what was happening in the 80s and what became the 90s. I mean, when we talk about 90s rock, there's this tendency to always pretend that it began with Nevermind. You know, that that's the first record of the 90s and then everything that came after that, that's what happens in that decade. But before Nevermind came out, you know, you had the situation in rock music where you where you had bands like Guns N' Roses and Motley Crue, like these enormous arena rock bands... And then you had underground rock bands, you know, replacements, uh, bands like that, Husker Du, you know, those bands that kind of came up in the 80s and then they imploded by the end of the decade. The Black Crows were in between there. They were sort of like a bridge band between the replacements and Guns N' Roses, you know, they they weren't glammed up, but they weren't like an indie band, you know, they were just this sort of straightforward rock band, um, the likes of which did not really exist at that time. Um and then, of course, grunge comes in and totally changes mainstream rock after that. But the Black Crowes still stuck around doing their thing. They never really belonged to any kind of scene or, or group or anything. Um, it's just a fascinating story. And uh, I wanted to have Steve on to, to talk about that, because this is a band that I think should be brought up more. You know, We just did this long series on Pearl Jam. Because they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Well the Black Crows were a contemporary of Pearl Jam And they're not really a band that Gets talked about In sort of the great bands of that era When in fact I think they really are Like their first four records in particular Shake Your Money Maker, Southern Harmony, Musical Companion Amorica and Three Snakes and One Charm Great records um, Great records that You know I think Carried the torch for Southern Rock <laughs> You know when Southern Rock was sort of left for dead um, carried the torch for sort of a, a, a kind of rock band that um, didn't seem to exist anymore in 1990, and yet the Black Crows were able to sort of take that template and revive it and make it relevant again for a new generation. Steve and I talk about that. We talk about the band. We talk about the band's history, and there's a lot of history in this band, a lot of mythology, a lot of fun stuff to get into. So I'm excited to share that conversation with you guys. But before we get to that, uh, I want to tell you about our sponsor this week, one of our sponsors this week is Harry's, and uh, if you listen to our podcast, you know that I use Harry's, uh, and I'm a big fan. The Harry story is, for decades, one big razor company has relentlessly increased prices and reaped immense profits at the expense of its customers. So these two guys, Jeff and Andy, they got tired of rip- getting ripped off, and they started this company, Harry's, to help hair suit men like me, and possibly you, to uh, get cheap razors. And th- the way they do this is they take less profit and they sell directly over the internet. And uh, not only are these razors cheap, but they're very high quality. You know, if you're gonna use these, if you're like me, you gotta shave all the time, uh, you're gonna be really taking care of yourself if you use uh, these razors. Uh, to sort of implore you <laughs> to try this product, Uh, we're offering a free trial set here for uh, Celebration Rock listeners. And what your free trial set includes is a weighted ergonomic razor handle, five precision engineered blades with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, a rich lathering shave gel, and a travel blade cover. Now, this is all worth about 13 bucks, but we're going to give it to you for free. All you need to do is go to harrys.com backslash rock. Again, that's harrys.com backslash rock, and you can get your free trial set. Again, that's harrys.com backslash rock. All right, so I had a great conversation with Steve. He has so many great stories. You'll hear at one point that I tried to end the conversation because we had been talking for over an hour. And then uh, he proceeded to tell this amazing story about the time that he almost beat up Liam Gallagher. And if you know anything about me, stories about drummers almost beating up Liam Gallagher, I mean, this is sort of like... That is my shit, okay? so I could not I had to let him go, and I feel like i I, I feel like this podcast could have been three hours because I know Steve has stories about basically every rock star that you ever have heard of or care about. Steve's met them, and he has a great story about it. So anyway, here's my conversation with Steve Gorman. So Steve, I'm really excited to have you on the podcast uh for a lot of reasons, you know, you and I. Our friends, but I feel like as your friend, I don't have permission to like ask you all of the nerdy fan questions that I want to ask. Mm-hmm. So now that we have this sort of fabricated situation, a of
1: formal a po- arrangement that I, finally allows you to ruin our friendship. I e- understand.
0: Exactly. Now I, you know, because now I can ask you these questions under the guise of a podcast rather than just being an annoying guy who's sending you texts all the time.
1: Perfect. <laughs> This works
0: out great for both of us. It works out perfectly,
1: it, and by both of us, I mean you.
0: <laughs> well, exactly. Well, you know, this is purely selfish on my on my. I, I, I'm not thinking of you at all
1: here. Your reputation precedes you, Hayden. We all know what you're up to.
0: <laughs> Let me start with this. You know, uh, on on my podcast, you know, recently I did a seven part series about Pearl Jam because they just got inducted in, into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yes, sir. And we are at this point now where bands from the 90s are starting to get inducted and there's debates going on about who's going to get in and who's not going to get in. Mm -hmm. I know the answer to this question already, but I I want you to answer it anyway. Do you ever think about this in terms of the Black Crows? And if so, does it bother you that you haven't been inducted yet?
1: Um, It does not bother me that we've not been inducted yet because I do not believe in any way, shape, or form that we ever will be. And that does not bother me beyond the surface level of... I, this is what bugs me about the Black Crows. I think that we were a great band when we, were, when we were great. And sometimes I feel like we were our own worst enemy in making sure that people would remember that for a long time. But in terms of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, without overthinking it, th- there's so many things that bands do and that artists do throughout their career that, that, that would be helpful for their case as far as who they're friends with and and just what games they play, and, I, and we never did any of that. And I'm not saying that from a place of we're better than anyone. There's no moral high ground. We just, we just did a lot of things that, that probably didn't make sense to other people and still look don't even make sense to me looking back um, <laughs> is the easiest way to say that. Um, and that's not to suggest that the people who get in did anything in order intentionally to help their case. But I know that, that the way that we operated was always so insular and so completely uh, away from what anybody else was doing. It it, it also makes perfect sense that the band, um, you know, we, we, we're we a band that lost, like, literally, if you go by numbers, you know, 90% of our imi- initial audience over the years, probably. So those things kind of happen. And when I look at bands in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I just don't see too many bands like the Black Crows in there. I mean... right. You know, we had a bunch of hits early, and then we stayed around for 20 more years. (laughs) Right. And just doing our own thing. So that doesn't add up. That's not the easy recipe for Rock and Roll Hall of Fame.
0: Yeah, I mean, and you just touched on this. What fascinates me about the Black Crows is that you were never part of a scene you know, or, or a narrative. And, you know, the first record comes out in 90, and I think it's easy to forget. Like, when we talk about the 90s, people seem to feel like it didn't start until Nirvana, Nevermind came out. That, mm-hmm. that seems to be how we remember things. But right. your first, re- you know, Black Rose first record comes out and like mainstream rock at that point was basically, you know, you had underground bands, like all those 80s bands, The Replacements and Husker Du and all those bands. And then right. you had Guns N' Roses and Poison and Motley Crue. There really was no middle ground. And then your record comes out and you guys are just this sort of great, straightforward rock and roll band I feel like you were like a missing link between the replacements and Guns N' Roses. Like you weren't the replacements and you weren't Guns N' Roses. You right. were kind of in the sweet spot in between. And then your second record comes out in 92. And by that point, grunge is happening and everything has changed. And, and you're already this sort of outlier band. I mean, it, to what degree was this by design? And to what degree was it just sort of by accident that that's what happened with your band?
1: Um by design, I mean, we definitely felt... It's funny because we did go in the space of one year from Upstart. We took all of our cues from bands like The Replacements. Like, we know that we didn't sound like that. And when we were making our first album, we were heavily immersed in in The Rolling Stones and Humble Pie and, uh, you know, The Faces just as much as The Replacements. I mean, we were we were going for something that was more rock and roll and not punk sounding but the the ethos and the mindset we were we were purely like mr crow's garden with the band was what the band was originally called that was just replacements 101 was our was our was our mindset pretty much looking back now of course after i read bob mayer's book i realized well we were like a minor league replacements so we weren't <laughs> quite that intense but but as far as you know never having a plan and looking at anybody who offered us help as they were the enemy for some reason, we had a lot in common uh, in, those, in that regard. But when we were making that record, just to, you know, go back to the summer of 89, you know, our goal, I mean, the thing we talked about was, man, if we could sell 50,000 records, which back then was very few records, if we could sell 50,000 records, maybe they'll let us make another one. Yeah. And if we could go play clubs around the country for like, you know, three months, then maybe they'll let us make another record. I mean, we had absolutely no no thought of it being a, a a hugely successful album because like you said it didn't sound like anything that was popular then and it didn't sound like it didn't sound like the indie bands that we loved and it didn't sound like the stuff that was on the radio so it was just what we did and it was what we felt we were good at and it, you know we were finding ourselves while we were making that record we were finally able to put a whole bunch of ideas together and and come up with a cohesive sound really for the first time you know, we made that record, and we threw everything we had. It was, a, it was the best record we could have possibly made. And then we went out and started playing shows in the fall before it came out, and we realized, wow, we made a record that's way better than we are. Like, you know, <laughs> we got to play a lot of gigs because we suck right now compared to that record we just made. Right. Um, but even when it came out, you know, we met our manager in December, and the record came out in February. You know what I mean? We had no plan whatsoever until we met our manager, Pete. And the idea was just get on the road for as long as you can and open for as many bands that'll have you, and, you know, maybe something will break. And, you know, right out of the gate, I think radio really liked Jealous again, which just was mind-boggling to us. I mean, we couldn't believe we were getting airplay. Yeah. And it and it and it took off. And it took a year, you know, that record took a year to go platinum, which felt really fast to us. But then, like you mentioned, Nirvana, you know, what did it take Nirvana to go from you know release to number one? Three weeks or something? I mean, that was like a comet taking off. Right. And, and we had comparatively a much slower build. So you know, our our situation was, um, I guess, a m- way more sort of traditional it was too fast for my liking i wanted i wanted every you know i wanted the second record to be the one that really broke through you know i just thought that made more sense yeah um and i and and at the time all that was happening like we got out and there there was a band called the london choir boys at the time that everybody said sounds just like the faces and then we came out (laughs) and they said you sound just like the stones and we were sort of (laughs) put into this category along with these other guys And we met them in L.A. one time, and they they just – they seemed like clowns to us. They were just playing (laughs) the part of something, and we were actually – took ourselves very seriously as a band, and we were like, hey, we're going to be a real band. You know, we're we're not really down for the party necessarily. It's more about trying to be great at this. Um, But then, like, the other bands that were around, you know, when we would go out – you know, we opened for Aerosmith that summer, and the band that had just been opening for them was Skid Row. Yeah. And then we went to some conference, and the other band was Slaughter. And then we went somewhere, and, and Cinderella was on the bill. And and we just never felt like we were had anything to do with any of those bands. There was no natural kinship. And, and, you know, the way they sounded and what their whole vibe was, that was just not us at all. And so we did feel, on that first album, very much like, God, we don't fit in anywhere because... Like, you know, Paul Westerberg probably thinks we're douchebags, and we probably think (laughs) Slaughter are douchebags, and, you know, the way you look at things back then, it's all levels of hip or cool or street cred or whatever it might be in your subconscious that you don't want want to admit you're actually thinking about. It didn't take too long, though, but we were always so insular. I mean, it it was a little weird at first, and then we realized, well, that's just what we've always been. We didn't fit into the Atlanta scene as a local band. Right. So by the time, by the time Nirvana came out and exploded, you know, we had already, we had peaked as far as like the record had been huge, like it sold millions and millions of copies. And, you know, I remember we were all in Europe and that record came out. I remember listening to it the first time I ever heard it. I was in a dressing room in Ireland and someone said the new Nirvana record and I had Bleach and I thought they were cool, but they said, yeah, this thing's going to be huge. And. And I can remember me and Robinson, actually, who liked the first Nirvana record, saying, like, what do you mean huge? Like, like they're going to, you know, sell out clubs everywhere. You know, we're not thinking of them in commercial terms. And the dude from the English label who handed it to us he goes, no, this record's going to be, like, this is going to be the biggest record in the world in a couple days or something. And, you know, we were so out of the loop. I was like, what are you talking about? And we put it on and listened to it, and we were like, holy shit, listen to that. And uh, But still never expected it to be what it was. So, you know, I think we had just gotten sort of comfortable with our place as just being like, oh, we're just going to do what we are, because it's not like a bunch of bands suddenly got signed that sounded like the Black Crows. That never happened. Right. Whereas Nirvana and Pearl Jam launched a thousand horrible ships in their wake. <laughs> you know, I mean, and no no discredit to them. They did what they did very well. But, of course, they were they were immediately uh, imitated and duplicated by, by everybody with a guitar. So... That certainly didn't, ha- you know, that happened with Guns and Roses, and it happened with those bands. I don't think that really ever happened with us.
0: Well, yeah, and and you mentioned Nirvana and Pearl Jam, and you know, and look, I've talked to you about this before. I, I, this is in my book, but like, you know, I'm fascinated by like the 1992 MTV Video Music Awards as a snapshot of music at that time, because mm-hmm. I think when people think of that show, they think of. You know, Chris Novoselic getting hit in the face with his bass. They think of you know, Axl Rose and Elton John playing with like an orchestra and right. a bunch of other weird stuff. But the Black Crowes opened that show. You guys played "Remedy," and like I think your record, the Southern Harmony Musical Companion, had just come out, maybe that summer. Uh-huh. Your second record, which is I think your best record still. That's still probably my favorite Black Crowes mm-hmm. record. Um, but you know, you kind of went from the situation with your first album where, because I, I remember I bought "Shaker Moneymaker." And I, and I loved it, and I loved the band, and if I wanted to read about the Black Crows, I would, I'd buy, like, Hit Parader or right. something, and it'd be, like, you, and it'd be all the hair metal bands. Right, and it'd just right. be, like, this band doesn't belong. And then two years later, you're in this new context where it's these alternative bands coming in, and, like, it's like a one, like, the world's done a 180, but you guys have stayed the same, but you still are out of place,
1: <laughs> I mean... Oh, that's very that's very, that's very, very accurate. I mean, and it was interesting, too. I just now remembered this, but in 90... So our record came out in... The second album came out in 92. I think it was in May. And that's the summer that Guns N' Roses and Metallica went out together, like in stadiums. Right. When Hetfield got burned on that big tour.
2: <laughs> right, right.
1: And they, they asked us to be the third band. They, they really came at us hard. The Metallica guys did, because we had done the Monsters of Rock tour in Europe in 91 with the A C D C and Metallica and so we'd gotten to know them. And they asked us to to be the opening band on that tour. Um and we said no and I mean it never even considered it because we were just so ready to do our own shows. And we were going to go out and headline in theaters, you know, all over North America and Europe and Japan and we were excited. And they're saying, come out and do stadiums on the biggest tour that's ever happened. <laughs>
2: right. And we
1: never even we never even had a band conversation about it other than can you believe they asked us? Like, we just, we were so baffled that they even asked, honestly. And 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 the idea that we would go out and just play for an hour in front of a real metal audience that wouldn't like us. I mean, that's first record stuff. And to us, we were like, we're past that. We, You know, why would we do that when we can go play to 5,000 people that really like us? And you can look back and say... As are, I'm sure the record company at the time was going, are you fucking out of your minds? <laughs> this is stadiums all over the world with the two biggest bands that are on the planet right now. But it never—it's it, it, funny looking back. I mean, we we did a lot of really stupid shit, but a lot of the things we did, uh, you know, the, you know that I look back and go, God, that was dumb. But that's not one of them because it was just we 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 already did the Monsters of Rock tour in Europe in '91 and didn't fit in at all. We opened the tour and. You know, Pantera comes on after us, and Motley Crue, and then Metallica, you know, and and then we felt some common ground with ACDC, but none of the other bands. And, right. you know, it's just one of those things, like, you get to a point where you're like, we've already done that. I mean, when you have 70,000 Danish boys screaming, faster, 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 throughout <laughs> your whole set, you know, you only need to have that happen once, and you go, yeah, we're done with this whole metal scene. See,
0: it's fascinating to me though, because like on the Metallica GNR bill, like and you for got, the
1: record, what well, our response to that was to play "Dreams" by the Almond Brothers for 19 minutes
0: <laughs> to the faster, faster, faster
2: yeah.
1: chant. Oh yeah, absolutely! In the middle of a set where we only get 45 minutes, half of it was a was a slow plotting Almond Brothers song that no one in Denmark had ever <laughs> heard before. I,
0: I just like the idea of you being on a bill with Metallica and GNR because you guys would have somehow been the most stable band out of yeah. those three. I feel like <laughs> the only context where you were like the most stable band.
1: That was, yeah, yeah I never thought of it in those terms that's true <laughs> you know I, it, you know it, it, forgive me
0: I you, you've told the story before to me but like you know going back to the VMAs to me like a perfect metaphor for what the Black Crows were at that time was backstage at the at the VMAs mm-hmm. you know you have this battle going on between Axl Rose and Kurt Cobain you know they almost come to blows and it's a big ego thing between like the old guard and the new guard and your trailer is is right in between
2: right <laughs>
0: very very true it seems like a perfect metaphor for what the black crows were at that time
1: yeah there was it was it was it was the gunners to our left and nirvana to our right and and we were just so amused all day long that it was such a it was so funny like and again it speaks to how little we were paying attention to these things like um you know we it was at poly pavilion on ucla's campus in westwood and so it's this really nice setting it's a beautiful day of course and and I remember driving in and getting out of the car backstage, and like the first thing I heard, there's like a red carpet where you can go be welcomed, and everyone gets their pictures taken, and and we literally just all immediately go away from that, like we're just like, where's our trailer? You know, we, I don't, we never felt like MTV people, and um, but right away people like, you know, Tabitha Soren or whoever was there from MTV, who we had met, and we all got along with people one on one fine, you know, they were all like, ah, what do you think about this? Axel and Kurt thing, and and we were all like, "What are you talking? What? What are you talking about? <laughs> like seriously, we're going to stand here and have a conversation about whether two frontmen might have a fight? Like it was just <laughs> so bizarre to us, and just sort of our our whole thing was so. And if it had been involving our one of, if it had been Chris in the middle of that, I would have been like, "Why are you talking about it? It just didn't. We just were so outside of that way of thinking about things. I think, and it was sort of, and we also just had that macho thing of like." If they're talking about fighting, they're not going to fight. You know, if they fight, they fight. If they're talking about it, they're just talking about it. Like, what's the big deal? And I do remember standing outside the trailer and and announcing that we would take on both bands. (laughs) Like, the Black Crows will kick the shit out of Nirvana and Guns N' Roses at the same time. Any takers? And, and and nobody thought it was funny. It was like that's how tense it was. People were like, "Oh my god, what's he trying to do?" And we're just inside our trailer laughing at the whole scene.
2: Well, and
0: and you had the best comparison for this. You compared it to the to the fights in Anchorman between like the different news teams. <laughs> yeah, right, right, that's, right. That's what it sounds like. Um, I want to uh, backtrack a little bit, uh, just to to your personal history a little bit. Like, correct me if I'm wrong. Like, were you born in Michigan and raised in Kentucky?
1: I was born in Michigan, and then as a very uh, as a as a you know when i was about two i guess we moved my family moved to just outside of baltimore and so from you know from the age of remembering anything until i was 10 i lived in maryland and then at 10 years old in 1975 we moved to hopkinsville kentucky right
0: and you started playing drums when you were a teenager
1: uh well i the first time i sat at a drum kit and played i was a teenager yes i was a like my senior year at high school well, I guess I. I well, if we're, if we're going deep dive, I sat at a drum kit in sixth grade once and was like, "Yeah, man, I could do that." And then, I, and then, and then, about you know six years later, I did it again at another friend's house. I walked into a house and there was a drum kit there, and I sat down and tried to play it. And I, I had been I had been drumming in my mind my whole life. I mean, that's all <laughs> I can remember thinking about was I want to be a drummer. And so, for a, a, a litany of reasons, like the eighth kid in a working class family, the drum kit ain't coming under the Christmas tree. And, and we were all jocks. I mean, I was playing sports the whole time and drumming was something that I just felt like, Oh, I could do that. And that'd be cool. But it, it I I just never was an, I just never did the thing where I got a job and saved all my money and bought a kit. Cause I was so obsessed with it. It just didn't seem like it, you know, I was in a small town in Kentucky and I was like, you know, I was listening to records that none of my friends liked. Um, I was just obsessed with finding the newest thing and I was re- I got really into new wave. I went right from the Beatles to like Devo and the B52s and and things like that and and I was I kind of prided myself on being the only cool kid in my grade, you know. <laughs> right. And of course everyone else would say, "Yeah, he was always the biggest dork," you know. It's like the way that goes. But um
0: well, you're a big story- Murmur fan too, I know. You are big R.E.M. Oh, guy.
1: Oh my god, yeah. I mean, R.E.M was the whole that's the the fire. That's what lit the entire thing. I saw R.E.M. Uh, open for the English Beat when I was in twelfth grade, and it just it just flipped a switch, and I was like, okay, that's it. By God, I've got to be in a band. And it's funny because I love R.E.M., but part of it was, well, hell, I can do what they're doing. I mean, you know, <laughs> hey. well, it was it was when you start seeing bands in clubs. Like up until then, like I, I loved, you know, I loved the Beatles. I loved like Devo, who I saw on Saturday Night Live, and then I loved the B 52s who I saw on Saturday Night Live, and then I got really also at the same time into Earth Wind and Fire. Because, you know, after they'd been in the Sgt. Pepper movie, and, and and the point of all this is whatever I liked, it was already big and well-known. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't well-known in my small town, but it was already on national television, and I'm, like, feeling like I'm discovering something. So it was only when I got to, like, 12th grade and then in college when you'd go in and see a band in a club that no one knows. That's the first time I realized, oh, wait, this is how it starts. Like, you don't start a band and suddenly you're huge. Like, oh, you just get friends together, and you knock around songs, and you figure it out. Like, I literally didn't understand that all those bands started in tiny clubs playing to nobody. Right. And so the first time I was seeing bands like that, I was like, oh, yeah, okay, I get it now. And R.E.M. was was the one that really, really, you know, seeing them, and the Chronic Town came out, and shortly thereafter, when Murmur came out, I mean, I just, I, I and then all of a sudden, I'm reading every article I can get, and I'm finding out how they did it, and, you know, and then three months later, I'm in college, and they were in college when they started, and so it immediately becomes okay. I can see a path, maybe, and but then it still—I still never bought a drum kit. I didn't have a nickel, and um, so when I got to college, I had another. I met a guy with a drum kit, and I said, "Hey, can I sit there?" And I literally played for ten minutes, and I was like, "Yeah, I got to do this one of these days." Um, but then I still didn't find anybody that I really thought would, would could I could do it with. And so what happened was a brother and some friends said, well, let's 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 be a band for New Year's Eve. So my freshman year, this is 83, we put a band together and learned like seven cover songs, and we played them all three times each. <laughs> and yeah. like the guitar player was really good, and the bass player was really good. And my brother sang, and I played drums, and we just faked it. You know what I mean? Like we were just, <laughs> we were entertaining, and the other two guys could actually play songs. And, and we played this New Year's Eve party in Nashville for New Year's Eve, 83, 84, and And I got up the next day and was like, that is it, man. I am, by God, I'm getting a kit, I'm finding people, and we're starting a band. And I did nothing about it. And a year later, we played another New Year's Eve party. And then a year after that, we played a third one. And so after my third gig, which was, you know, three years in the making, that's when I said, okay, by God, I've got to do something about this. (laughs) And then I started, like, talking to people about really playing and, and then I gave up and moved to Atlanta because a friend of mine called and said, hey, I'm going back home to Atlanta and I'm starting a band. You're drumming all the time, right? And I was like, oh, yeah, all the time. And, uh, and, and I just needed an excuse to drop out of college. And I thought, I'm not going to start a band in Kentucky, but I could do it in Atlanta. So it was really that simple. I just In, in February of 87, I, I just got a Greyhound bus to Atlanta, and that was that. Yeah, and, did,
0: and you, did you meet Chris Robinson right away?
1: Yeah, he picked me up at the bus station.
0: And he, because he was a friend of your friend.
1: Yeah, my buddy was a guy named Clint Steele, and uh, and he and I had gone to high school together in Kentucky, and then his family had moved back to Atlanta, where he was from. So he wanted to go back there and start a band. And his and he and Chris uh, were had played in bands in high school, and you know they had or, or you know back after I was in college, I guess they were still finishing high school, so they knew each other. And then they had decided to get a house together. So Clint told me he goes, "We'll pick you up at the bus station. It's going to be me." and our bass player Sven which is the, who Sven Pippian later ended up in the Black Crows from 97 on. Right. But at the time he was my friend Clint's friend that was going to play bass in our brand new band. So all I knew was some guy named Sven and some guy named Chris were going to be at the bus station to pick me up and that's that's what happened.
0: And like was was Rich Robinson in the picture at this point?
1: He was yeah, he and Chris were already playing. They were okay. and called the band Mr. Crow's Garden. Rich was still in high school. And so You know, and they had a different rhythm section, you know, every three months. It was not – they had never found anybody that was really, like, staying with them or that they felt would stay around and they could really build a band with. And I think the thinking was Rich just wanted to – you know, he he wasn't going to drop out. He was going to graduate high school, and then maybe they could – you know, then it could be a full-time thing, I guess. And when I got there, he was still – he still had, you know, it was like the summer, it was the spring of his senior year when I moved to town.
2: Okay. And then,
1: and, but he lived out, they lived out in the suburbs. So I really only saw Rich if he was in town playing a gig. But Chris and I, and Sven and Clint all moved into a house together. So you had four guys living in a house and two bands represented between those four guys. And then everybody we ever met that needed a place to crash was in that house as well. So it was a really. It was a really fun flop house for just like six or eight months, but back at those, you know, it felt like a, a decade because <laughs> we were not we w- we weren't missing a second of the day, if you know what I mean.
0: Right, right. I mean, you know, look, I I know you and Chris, your relationship has had a lot of ups and downs, and we can get into that later or not get into it, but like at this point, at that, you know, was he the same as he became, or like, was it different back then when you guys were you know just getting yeah? To each if other? you're
1: asking, was he shit house crazy in 1987? <laughs> the answer is absolutely, yeah. Um, in all the best ways, I mean, we met and went out to dinner, and then the first night I was in town, we went to a party at someone's house and and we have different senses of humor, but they click together, so like like that first night I met him, we were just killing each other like all night, like everything I said he thought was the funniest thing ever, and everything he did I thought was fucking hilarious and so like the next day we were just that was it we were just great friends, you know it was it it, it happened immediately and and then it was my second night in town that actually Mr. Crow's Garden had a show. So I met Rich the next day, and then I went to their gig. But at no point in hanging out with Chris for 24 hours did I think he's probably a, a, a good front man. I mean, he just <laughs> didn't strike me as a singer at all. You know what I mean? He had really short hair, and he was kind of clean-cut looking, and he wore like Oxford. He was kind of preppy looking, actually, Yeah. And, um, and was just such a live wire. I mean, he, was, he, he never shut up and he was just <laughs> it was really intense actually and uh but then he got on stage and he and his voice was much higher it was very warbly sort of but he but he immediately had charisma you know like like you just had to watch him and and he was just in jeans and a white shirt and a blazer on stage and and not really not not interacting with the audience on any level he was solely in his own head but it was totally involving like that was the only thing you saw or paid attention to and i was like holy shit that guy's got something and uh you know and that that was it i was like wow he's really that there's really something going on there and it was probably three months of living together and then the guys i moved there to start a band with we put a band together called marry my hope and in fact i convinced another friend from college to move to atlanta to be our singer so it was that band, "Marry My Hopes," first gig was probably in May of '87, opening for Mr. Crow's Garden in town. Okay, and uh, we played maybe three gigs, and then we're immediately having uh, fights about the direction of the band because that's what happens, you know. <laughs> right. and, and like this guy I'd known my, you know, for years and years. I moved to Atlanta to start a band with him. Suddenly, we're arguing about every single thing under the sun. For the first time in our relationship, we're, we're, you know, we've never even disagreed, and suddenly we were like, "That's bullshit, man. That's not what it should be. It's got to be this." And who ate my ramen noodles? I mean, it <laughs> it really got stupid. And then, uh, and Chris and Rich had actually gotten contact. Somebody from AM Records had gotten a hold of them and wanted to do a demo. And Chris said, "Hey, we don't have a drummer right now, and we got a session. They're giving us five grand to go record some songs. Will you come play on it?" And I'd had a drum kit for literally three months, and I was like. Yeah, sure, why not? What could go wrong? You know. And then, and then I got into a studio, and I was kind of having an anxiety attack the whole time because I realized, wow, I'm so in over my head. But we got through it, and we just did this session. We actually, A&M Records sent Mr. Crow's Garden to Chapel Hill, North Carolina, to go work with a guy named Steve Gromback, who'd made a Rain Parade record. And we did a few songs with him, and and I, I was literally so new to all of this. I mean, I I had played three shows in my whole life, and all of a sudden I'm – Demoing for A and M with my friend's band, and it was really weird, and and it just felt like it was going really fast. And while we were on that trip, you know, Chris liked it me. One day he goes, "Why don't you just play with us?" And I was like, "Yeah, I think that makes sense." I mean, and it was funny because at the time, like Mr. Crow's Garden was like the, you know, Chris and I we, like we drank, and that was it. And then Mary, and my hope, like those guys were doing drugs, and I was like, "I'm more of a drinker than a drug guy." I think I'll go with Robinson. <laughs> <laughs> Which was, you know, looking back, of course, the 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 inherent comedy in that mindset.
0: The lightning crashed at that point. Exactly. <laughs> it's very so momentous. we drove
1: back to Atlanta, and I told my band Mayor My Hope, I was like, "Hey, I'm going in Mr. Girl's Garden," and they were like, "Oh, fuck you!" And then, like the next day, <laughs> they replaced me, and it was all fine. Yeah. When did Rick
0: Rubin enter the picture for you guys?
1: Um, he entered the picture. We so that was 87, So by summer of eighty seven, like Mr. Girl's Gardens, me, Chris, and Rich, and a revolving door of bass players for a while and we met uh we didn't meet rick until you know we had actually already been signed to his label and made our record who we met was george draculius the guy that signed us and the guy that produced our first two records came to see us play a gig in 1988 in new york city we got our first ever gig in new york and we were. uh we were opening for a band called The Wild Seeds from Austin, Texas. And somehow, some way, somebody offered us $500 to open for The Wild Seeds in New York. <laughs> okay. And I, I have no idea how that happened. I mean, none. All I know is we got in the van and we drove from Atlanta to New York for one gig because we just really wanted to go to New York.
2: Yeah. And our
1: bass player at the time, a guy named Ted, had a friend up there who was out of town and said we could crash at his apartment. So it was like a no-brainer. Like, let's go. Yeah. And while we were at in New York... At this club called Drums, um, we played a set, 45 minutes, and this, and all of a sudden the door like kicked open and George Draculius walked in. And George was, at the time, he did A&R for A&M Records, and right. he was like 23 years old at the time, or 24. And, uh, and he had been, quite famously now, Rick Rubin's roommate at NYU and Rick Rubin's sort of uh, com- you know, compadre for all of his earlier career. And all the all the Run D M C stuff and the Beastie Boys stuff and all these things Rick did with Russell Simmons and Def Jam. George was a part of that. And then Rick moved to L A to start Def American, his rock label. Yeah. And George stayed in New York and went to work for A and M Records. And because we had demoed for A&M A and year earlier with what it didn't really go anywhere, George just I think he just knew the name Mister Crow's Garden. He recognized that as oh, the label's doing something with them. I don't really know what prompted him to take the time to come and see us, but he did. And he came into the dressing room, and we had met several A&R guys up to this point by now, and we met people in the industry, and agents or managers would come over, and they all just struck us as totally full of shit. Whether they were or not, we just assumed, and we just decided everyone's full of shit. Again, not not necessarily to 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 our betterment. But George was the first guy that we just immediately clicked with. I I mean, I remember it so specifically. He said, hey, I'm George. I'm with A&M. And we were like, oh, hey, man. And all we're thinking is credit card. He's buying drinks. Let's be nice for a minute, you know. And he said, I said, what'd you think? And he goes, or one of us said, what'd you think? And he goes, well, um, you know, you guys aren't very good, but I like the covers you played. (laughs) And I swear to God, in that moment, we all went, okay, there's our guy. (laughs) There's our guy. Cause we weren't very good. And then we knew, I mean, I used to say we're the worst band in Atlanta and the best band in the world because <laughs> I, I really believe that. Like, yeah, I know we suck, but we're going to be fucking great one day. And you're too stupid to know it right. is how I approached everybody with our band. And, and he saw that and he said, and it was 1988. And again, when you talk about context and what we were doing spring of 88, we played a 45 minute set and we played two covers one of which was Down in the Street by the Stooges, yeah. and the other one was No More, No More by Aerosmith. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, what the, who the fuck plays Aerosmith and the Stooges? And we were like, we do. And uh, and we just clicked, and we started talking, and, and we hung out with him, and then we stayed an extra day to hang out with him again the next day. And we drove back to Atlanta, like, you know, 16 hours just going. We all knew, like, that we've met the guy. We're going to make a record with him one day that's the only dude that, that gets us. And it's going to be great. And you know, it took about a year, which felt like 10 years, but in the spring of 89, he was like, all right, let's do this. I'm, I've left A&M. He had gone to work for Rick Rubin again at deaf American in Los Angeles. And he said, uh, I think he tried to sign us to A&M and, and he was turned down. They didn't want us. Yeah. And then, so when he goes, well, I'm going to go to deaf American and we'll make a record. And that's exactly what he did. And, You know, there's nobody that—I see George—I saw him last month. I I, still—I don't think I've ever seen him in the last 20 years without at some point going, oh, by the way, thanks for my career. I appreciate it, because that's entirely what he did. He gave us everything that we ever—he opened every door and probably a few more than we had earned at that point, for sure.
0: But then you have, you know, you have George Acoulias, who's a great, you know, help to the band, a great patron of the band, but then you have Ruben in the background who—
1: Well, he wrote the check.
0: He wrote the check, and and he was sort of—is it fair to say he was hostile towards you guys? He
1: wasn't hostile. We interpreted it as hostile. I mean, Rick is just being Rick, and, you know, I think what Rick Rubin had dealt with up to that point was artists who would jump through a flaming hoop to get a record deal, and that wasn't us at all. we, You know, we were just these guys in Atlanta who didn't trust the system on any level, and, you know— He let us make the record. The first thing George said is, we'll go to L.A. and make a record. So we were all like, man, we're going to go to L.A. This will be great. And then, you know, at some point he came back. He goes, okay, well, we're going to make it in Atlanta. But, you know, and we were disappointed. But I remember very sincerely, I mean, specifically George said, he goes, we were pissed because we wanted to go to L.A. And he goes, guys, trust me, this will be better. Just (laughs) we can do it here. No one's going to be around to get in the way and and he was he meant Rick and he meant other you know industry types. I think George recognized in us very quickly we're not playing the game like you know we're we're it's not that we we know the game sucks, and we've seen it all before. It's just that we were we thought the game sucked and we were dumb enough to think that we had a leg to stand on and so you know we we stuck to our guns, you know sometimes ignorance is your best friend, I mean we didn't even know what we were opposing. We were just opposing whatever was brought our way.
0: Well, I like, didn't Rick want you to wear overalls and call yourself Yeah, so that
1: that was later. So we <laughs> okay. made the record in the summer of 89. And then Chris went to LA to finish the vocals and for for it to be mixed. So the band we we cut the record in Atlanta and then Chris and George went to LA for a couple weeks or a week. And Chris came home having finished his vocals and we and, you know of course we're all just like what happened? What was, you know, what's it like out there? You know, it was <laughs> like he had come back from Mars as far as we knew. And, and he was telling us stories about it and he was like, Oh, it was great. We went here, we did this. And, and he said, Rick came by the studio a few times and he didn't, he didn't love Rick too much, but Rick just, I think Rick just didn't understand at all, had no concept of what do you mean you have a band that doesn't want to be huge? What what do you mean you have a band that, that doesn't think the choruses need more work? Like that just didn't even compute in Rick's mind. And so we finished the record they got they mixed it and you know but rick heard the record and knew it was good he liked the record and so in the fall of 89 he took a trip to atlanta to finally meet the band to finally come to town and sit down and you know as the owner of the label and as the guy who literally paid for us to make a record now we hadn't even been sent a contract nor had we signed one, of course. And we already had a record in the can. And it didn't occur to us on any level that eh, we're, that's, that's a vulnerable pos- position to be in. You know, like, we just have a record out and we're waiting for it. We don't even have a manager. Like, we don't have anybody. We just have us and George. You know, that was our entire brain trust. And so Rick shows up in the fall of 89. And uh, the label was solicited. The label was sending the record to managers, like, to all the rock managers of all the big bands. And all of them passed. Like, like they just had no interest. They didn't hear it at all. And so Rick came into town conveniently when there was also a wrestling event that he could go take in because he was really into wrestling. And so the first time we met him, we went, uh, we played a gig, and he showed up at the gig. And he walked in the dressing room afterwards. And the first words he ever looked, he looked at me, and the first thing he ever said was, Do you ever play along to a click track? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, "I in the studio." He goes, no. Do you ever rehearse with one? And I said, "No." And he goes, "I'm going to get you one." And I was like, uh, "Okay, <laughs> nice to meet you, dude." And uh, and then we went to a bar that night, and and then he—that's when he said, "I, I just don't—I don't know what to make of you guys. Uh, you're a southern band, and you're—you don't look southern." I mean, he said that, and and of course we're like, "What does that mean?" He goes, "I don't know. Overalls and you know, like flannel shirts and like work boots. You know, like." And, and I you know, we're, we're sitting at a bar in the Virginia Highlands in Atlanta going, Rick, we're in a city of four million people. You think we're on a farm? The <laughs> fuck are you talking about? Like, we were just – so it didn't take long before we all had absolutely no time for him. And then it was a totally true story that he suggested we call ourselves the Cobb County Crows because Cobb County is the northern suburb county where the Robinsons had grown up. And he said, why don't you call yourselves the Cobb County Crows and spell it with three Ks? <laughs> and – and we laughed to be polite at his stupid joke. And he yeah. looked at us. He goes, I'm not joking. And then it it got really dark. I mean, we just said, hey, go fuck yourself. You know, go fuck off. Like I mean, you we literally were, said that? Oh, yeah. It was like, we're all like, go, go take that record, shove it up. You fuck you. What's wrong <laughs> with you? I mean, we were not happy. And, and he laughed it off. He's like, hey, just, just try and just see. You know, and, and to him, it was all just a. You know, he's just amusing himself, and he was Rick fucking Rubin. You know, who are we? He's just doing his thing. He's already a, a giant, like mogul type guy in 1989. At that point, at least compared to us, he was. Yeah. So you know, it just and it. I don't even remember like how we said goodbye or if he left town. I do know that before he left town, um, he said, "Give me your address," and I gave him the, my address. I was just living in a house with some dudes, and like a week later a metronome a a a thing called a dr beat he mailed one to my house and i never once took it out of the box and in fact i had it on the road with me on tour for most of the first album and i and i was always saying i'm just gonna give it back to him when i see him someday and i I don't think i ever did but it was it was unopened uh you know with me on the road for a long time
2: yeah
0: well so that record comes out but
1: the truth is but but i will say this that you know our view of that. Uh, if you asked Rick, if he even remembered all that, which I I sincerely doubt he does, he was just amusing himself and fucking around. And and he also said, he like, goes like I remember he said, I've heard your record and I listened to the new Motley Crue record. And guys, I really I think you made a better record. And that's <laughs> yeah. a, that's a really nice thing to say to a brand new band. And we interpreted it as, well, I fucking Motley Crue, fuck you. You know, we were so insulted that he would compare us. To a dumb hair metal band,
2: you know, right,
1: right, and and I'm not saying that was the the right way to think. It's but it's just what it was, and so right away there was such a disconnect. And and but the truth is, throughout our entire relationship, I always got along with him fine. I mean, Rick's just Rick's just Rick. I mean, right. he didn't know what he was getting into. The fact is, George said, "I like these guys. I want to make their record." And Rick said, "Okay, <laughs> I mean, right." End of story. End of story. Thanks, dude. I appreciate it because we didn't have 70 grand to make that record.
0: Right. Totally. Okay, we're going to take a quick break from my conversation with Steve Gorman. I want to tell you about our sponsor this week, and that is ziprecruiter.com. Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? With ZipRecruiter, you can find your job, you could post your job to 100 plus job sites with just one click. Then the, their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job better than anyone else. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. In fact, over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. No juggling emails or calls to your office. You simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-find dashboard. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. Right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. You just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash celebration. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash celebration. One more time to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash celebration. Okay, now let's go back to my conversation with Steve Gorman. Shake Your Money Maker comes out in '90 yeah it's uh you know it's hard to handle is a big song Mm -hmm. she talks to angels is a big song i think that record sells like five million copies domestic or something so that's a huge record yeah second record comes out in 92 you guys record it quickly i think you recorded in a week or so southern harmony musical companion that record debuts at number one that's a big record yeah is that around the time that, like, the rock and roll sort of lifestyle starts to take hold in the band? I mean, because you're, you're the scrappy band up until then. but Yeah, now the you're second
1: this... tour, if by, if by, you know, just, just nonstop drugs and drinking, you know, we were, the first record felt like, you know, we hit the road and we had something to prove and we were getting paid to drink beer, you know. And then by the time the second record came out, we felt, I mean, we were, we, had, we, let, we went on the road for Shake Your Money Maker and we were an okay band with a really good record. And for Southern Harmony, we felt like we're the best rock and roll band on the planet, and we have a fucking awesome record. Right. And, and I would, to this day, still agree with those two sentiments. I think in 1992, there was no band you could go to and say they were better or did what they were trying to do more effectively than we did. We were exactly in our, you know, we were playing to all of our strengths in 92 and 93, right. and not in a way that you only can for a certain point in your, in your life before you get bored. So but you know the band and that album really it really was I mean looking back I say that but even at the time it was like okay this is man we're we're in a zone right now that we can't even possibly explain but we all feel it and, and we re- and we were and that that band that year and a half tour we were just fucking world beaters we were killing it
0: And again just for for context I mean this is the record with Remedy on it Thorn in My Pride yeah. Hotel Illness lots of great songs mm-hmm. future concert staples for the black crows and but i mean wh- i mean you're touring now behind that record you, you said you're, you know you're out for a year and a half i mean was that did that kind of feel like you know okay we're on a big time rock and roll tour now we're gonna like oh yeah have, like a rock and roll band
1: yeah oh for no question i mean because we were and like the summer of 92 like i said we turned down the metallica guns and roses tour and then the promoters were all saying, let's go to amphitheaters and do sheds, like the outdoor you know, amphitheater circuit, which were big venues. Those are, you know, twelve to 20,000 tickets. And I, I guess everybody felt we could do those, but we, we said, no, we're doing theaters. Like, we would much rather, you know, we opened that tour in Minneapolis oh. in, of the U.S. in August of, or July of 92. Was
0: it like First Avenue?
1: No, it was a theater, a big theater, okay. like a three or 4,000-seat Place and we did like three nights. Like, we would rather do three nights at 4,000 tickets a night than one 12,000 night to t- you know, one shed and sell 10,000 tickets. Right. Um, now, our business manager <laughs> was looking at us and going, Guys, <laughs> there's a thing called costs and <laughs> expenses. that if you play one night and sell that many tickets as opposed to three, you all make a lot more money. And we, but we didn't care. We were like, no, man, theaters are the best place to see rock bands. You know, sheds can be cool, but they kind of suck. And you know, we just wanted to do it very controlled. And you know, you watch bands go up too fast, and then they get, then they fall. You know, and we were like, no, we haven't even really headlined theaters very much. Let's let's knock these out of the park. And and the thinking was, well, if Southern Harmony sells five million records, we have to go to arenas. But But it's, but we did even, and again, despite how big Shake Your Moneymaker was, even in 92, we were like, this record's not going to be huge. There's just no way, you know, like, look at the industry. And then, and then again, it was on the heels, you know, Nirvana had already come and just completely raised, you know, flat, scorched earth, you know, Nirvana land is when Southern Harmony came out. So we didn't expect it to be bigger than Shake Your Moneymaker. So, you know, we just wanted to keep it under control. But by the spring of 93, we did have certain markets, like the venue would just be an indoor. It was eight or 9,000 tickets. But then in Europe, the, Southern Harmony was bigger internationally than Shake Your Money Maker. Like in, in North America, the first record was the big one. Southern Harmony did a lot better in Europe. And so we were headlining festivals in Europe in 93, which that was like the biggest commercial. You know, like we headlined Glastonbury and Pink Pop and all these massive festivals. You know, we were... We were killing it in Europe, and at that point, yeah, I mean, it was a hundred percent. It was just on. Like, we are a fucking massive band. This is crazy. Yeah. How did you know? How the fuck did this happen?
0: And because I mean, this leads into a period, and we're limited on time here, so I can't ask everything I want to ask. But I definitely. I'm wanna... cool.
1: I, I'm. I mean, I, I know it's. Uh, we're fine. I'll let you know. I'll, I'll. You know what? I'll hang up violently when I have
0: to go. <laughs> one of my one of the most fascinating periods for me of the band is after that tour you go into the in the studio you're working on this record called tall and this is based on the behind the music episode that i've seen on you guys so mm-hmm. th- this may be incorrect but like you go in it's my understanding you spend like a million dollars making this record and then and you're having these like orgies in the studio with drugs and you know women walking around and it's just this sort of like satiricon type scene mm-hmm. and then you end up kind of that record comes out later but you end up putting that aside for now and then you end up making a Morico, which is another one of the great black crows records but what are your memories of that time working on tall being in the studio obviously a very creative period for the for the band you're making great music but it also seems very tumultuous
1: well it was incredibly tumultuous but the 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 one thing that there's there's a step along the way on the tour for the second album that that later repeated itself, that was a real um, a miss. Uh, uh, looking back to me, I always felt like we fucked up, which was in the middle of the Southern Harmony Tour, we took a day off in New Orleans and went to Daniel Lenoir's studio and just just demoed all of our new songs. Like, we just wanted to get them down and recorded. And George wasn't working with us at that point. And then We did that day with Brendan O'Brien, who had engineered our first album. He was an Atlanta guy. And through that process, met Rick Rubin, and then his career took off with a bit of a bang, which, and by the way, it's still banging. So, <laughs> Right.
2: Um,
1: but Brendan, we thought, well, maybe we'll get him to produce the third album. So we did a day in Lanois' studio with him, and we recorded a few songs. There was the first version of nonfiction, but we did a song called Exit and one called Bewildered and one called The Fear Years. And they were big, like, rock tracks. Like, not rock and roll, just like hard fucking rock Um. And, and it was the band just playing live, like, because, you know, we were playing all the time. We just were gigging constantly, and the band was so together right then. And we, the those tapes are still, to me, they're the baddest fucking thing we ever recorded, ever, is this day at Daniel Lanois. Oh, wow. And I, and my big plan, now, of course, it's easy to say I was right when we don't know the result, but I was insistent the whole time, like, we should put this out as an EP in 93. And fucking, you know, this is this is the next step, and it's important. And we don't have to go in and fix it and polish it all up. Let's just say, here's six hours in the French Quarter. Boom, put it out. And it and it didn't happen. And by the time that tour ended, we had started playing those songs live, so they became a part of the live show anyway. But all of a sudden, we finished that tour, and then we get together to make a Morica. And it's just all about well, what news? We need new songs, new songs, new songs. And along the way, we just these great tunes got lost in the shuffle. And that turned out to be kind of how it went a lot of the time. We always wrote on tour. Our sound checks were writing sessions for years. That's what we did at Soundcheck. You know, the sound man wants to get the sound together, and we want to plug in and write songs and work on new material. And so that's why we would be on stage for, you know, an hour and a half every afternoon, because we were just working on new tunes. So we lost some really great stuff along the way. And then, and then when we started pre-production and started writing for the new album... The decision was made, and I don't remember specifically a conversation, but it was just determined, those are songs from the old days. We need all new music. And uh, and, and I think we did ourselves a disservice because we had some really great shit that should have gone out. But have those um, songs ever come out? They finally did. No, wait. Those have never been released, I don't think. No. Okay. Uh-huh. They were never even mixed. I mean, we did the live mix at the time, and it's all, you know, there's no scratch. There's just the vocal. The whole performance is live. There's no overdub anywhere. And we never did anything with them. And they're fucking great. This is
0: like hard rocking. Yeah. In the pocket.
1: It is. It's it, And, and lo- like the song Bewildered is like nine minutes long. And they're all seven or six minutes. They're just epic fucking, you know. They're like November Rain, man. Um, (laughs) You know, they're just big songs. And, uh, you know, like the Black Crow fanatic fans all know them and love them. Like, they're they're lost holy grails to the real diehard fans. If we'd ever play any of those, they'd be like, holy shit, you know? Yeah. Um, But when we got to L.A., so then the other thing was Chris had moved to L.A. and he insisted on making the third album in L.A., which we are fine with. You know, okay, cool. And we went to, in the fall of 93, like around, you know, November. We all went to L.A. to start putting songs together. And we were at a place called The Alley out in the Fran, in North Hollywood in the Valley rehearsing. And we, we just – it was an incredible time. I mean, and we threw together at least 30 songs in a month. I mean, we were just rolling. And we were in there every day. And every day we would put five songs together and end up keeping two of them. You know, I mean, it was crazy. There was just so many ideas. And we were just – the band at that time, it's the kind of thing where uh, in any band there's moments where, you know, for the writers, like Chris and Rich are writing the songs. Everybody's in there for the arrangement. everybodys They're doing them as if we're all in the group room together. And, you know, Chris always wrote the lyrics. That was never even a that, – that's just his realm. You know, Rich is playing riffs, and Chris is going, I like that. Do this. Put that there. And then Rich goes, well, I thought this way. And, you know, they're over in the they're, – they're arguing through the process the whole time. But everybody's playing on those things. And, and this isn't a, a comment about songwriting credit by any stretch. Those guys always wrote the songs. But when you have a band that's just so completely in each other's pockets all the time and, and is playing as much as we were, the speed that we could... We would figure out real fast if something was going to work or if it wasn't. Like, we were just so phenomenally efficient. Looking back, I'm, like, blown away by what we were all able to accomplish, like, in, 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 in certain bursts of time like that. I mean, it, it, it was a very special... Thing that we of course took for granted because why wouldn't we this is how we roll yeah um, So we wrote all these songs and then in January I guess or maybe is a little I guess in December we actually started tracking this record at Conway which was in Hollywood and and then went home for Christmas everybody came back in January. the big Northridge earthquake hit knocked everybody out of the studio for a few days while they've repaired damage uh, came back at the end of January and said okay you know we finished this album and and the whole time we were making that album there 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 wasn't it wasn't like um the the satiricon orgy craziness that was all later this making the making the record that was eventually called tall it was just you know we started we started at 8 p.m and we left at 6 a.m every day for a month you know or whatever it was and it was just a lot of a, a lot of drinking, which was normal. To, to say we were drinking is like saying we were there. That's just <laughs> what you did. Right. But there was a, a ton of cocaine at the time, um, which and I, I tried it a few times. It never worked for me, but there was a lot of it going on in the room at all times, and you know we were not doing ourselves any credit that the strength of that band was we could plug in and play. Yeah. And we were suddenly trying to make a fucking Steely Dan record or something. And it was like, <laughs> the more we played the the less life, you know, it was just, it was just slowly sucking life out of everything we did. It's, it's how I looked at it. And so we all went home and had these rough mixes and I, I didn't like the record tall. I, you know, the songs are good. I, it just didn't, it, there was no vibe, the visceral, You know, like I said, working to our strengths was something we had gotten really good at, and suddenly we're trying to do things that we can do, but it's not our strong suit. You know, like, when I say Steely Dan record, I mean, like, that's the shit we were listening to and, you know, reference points. What about this? And I'm going, you know, we're a fucking great basketball team. Why are we trying to play rugby? You know, or whatever you want to, what the analogy is. It just didn't feel like we were being us.
0: Right, yeah, because like, Southern Harmony was like a was like a live record, basically. You're, you're just knocking it out.
1: Yeah, we did. Yeah, those tracks were fast. That was yeah. like a, a long weekend of basic tracks, and then a few days of overdubs. I mean, it was real quick.
0: So tall, you're just sort of laboring it to death, and at some point you decide. What's...
1: Well, we all went home, and you know, we tell ourselves it's great, and then we go home, and everyone's away from each other for a few weeks listening, and um, I don't, I, I don't remember the. the exact who called who and who said what but all of a sudden it was like we got to go make another record this thing's just stale you know it's not what we need to do right now and we need to get a different you know we were producing that one ourselves which means chris was producing and then rich would go in and say no take off what chris did and put this here and you know they were they were both anti-producing each other is what they were doing and so then we we decided we needed to make a record with somebody else which was, which was a good decision. And then we ended up going up. So in the spring of 94, we said, fuck that. And we go to Sound City in the Valley with Jack uh, Puig. And we start over. And a lot of the songs we kept, but we just needed them to be in a different space, in a different headspace, in a different room and everything about it. And so that's where we cut Amorica. And while we were in the studio at Sound City, we shot what we were gonna, what we thought would be a promotional video, like an EPK thing. And we had a giant costume party, And everybody just ate a bunch of mushrooms, and we just filmed us jamming in a room full of freaks. Right. And uh, another one of those things that I don't think ever really saw the light of day, but people knew about it and were like, whoa, what's going on there? But there's a sense that that's how the album was recorded, which is entirely not true. The album was recorded with a bunch of beanbag chairs and lava lamps and weed and some mushrooms and some cocaine and a lot of beer and then when we filmed part of it we added a whole bunch of freaks and costumes.
0: <laughs> I love that that was your EPK. That you're like this is going to be our press
1: release. <laughs> Again, not not really a, not really fitting in with any so-called scene at the time. It was right. a little, we were always a little out there.
0: So I, I want to flash forward here many years to to 2013. Like this was around the time that I met you mm-hmm. we, and uh I remember because that was the last Black Crows tour and I, I saw a couple shows on that tour and right. I, I saw you backstage a little bit. And I remember seeing the band on that tour and thinking, Wow, they're so good. You know, and obviously there'd been a couple hiatuses before that in two thousand one mm-hmm. and then there was it got back in the mid two thousands and then it seemed like there was another one, but it seemed like, okay, they're at a point now where they can tour and then maybe take some time off and tour again. I just assume that there'd be like a period of stability now because you clearly had an audience that loved you and you right. could go play shows, yeah. sell tickets, and then that well, tour you, ends and in the band implodes and now it right. seems like it's for sure done.
1: Yep. Like, like what happened? Um, well, in twenty, well, what happened was at the end of twenty ten, um, it just it seemed like it had completely run its course. You know, I, my version of events, and everybody has their own view. Chris didn't want to be. In, in a band anymore where he didn't make every single decision now he are he always made a lot of the decisions i mean i, I think he had a real desire to just be you know the soul you know mind whatever he, he just wanted everything to be what he wanted and when the band got back together in '05, there was this sense of we kind of blew it the first time we we, we really we had a great run but then it all f- sort of fell apart and we all got sick of each other and we don't know how to communicate, and, and we don't want to grow up, or whatever the reasons were that the band stopped in 2001. Um, and it's easy to say, I just want to do my own thing, but there's always more to it. And he and he and his brother, you know, from the day I met them, they fought. It's not like they just got famous and suddenly went different ways. They were never on the same page Yeah. beyond the fact they had the same last name, and so they figured, well, we have to do this together, I guess. But, you know, it's not like that was anything new that happened with fame and fortune. It was always there. And it just runs its course. I mean, when you got a bunch of people in your mid-30s, it's just like, fucking, enough already. Like, why, why are you fighting over the same shit? And it does impact, and they would always go, this is our business, don't worry about it. It, it infiltrates every element of the band's existence when two people are fighting every single day about every little thing. Right. And, and you end up with everybody walking around on eggshells. Because you're just so you just are you just don't have time for it. It's exhausting for everybody. And so when the band ended in 2001, it was kind of there. 05, there was a sense of well, fuck, well, let's do it right this time. Like everybody's grown up a little bit. Everybody's experienced life outside the Black Crows. It's probably not as cool as it could be. And there was a real sense of let's go back and not repeat mistakes. And. By the summer of '06, it was apparent we were just in the same hamster wheel. I mean, in a lot of ways, and some people, you know, people just don't change unless they truly decide to change. And so the band was—it felt very much like it always had, which is, God, we're really good, and it's a real pain in the ass to be here. Um, <laughs> right,
2: and right. those
1: two or three hours a night—you know, when the when the show isn't good, it becomes impossible to be here. So at least the, I think everybody had that sense of well, if the show sucks, then I'm just going to have to jump off a fucking bridge because the rest of this day is miserable around these people. Like, you know, and I can point fingers and people point fingers at me. I mean, it's like everyone's got their perspective. And the whole thing was just tense and difficult and angry and and just not, you know, it was was never fun. It was just never, isn't this fucking great? We're in a great band and people love us. And uh, that was just like not allowed in that band. Which is unfortunate, you know. It's stupid that it could never evolve to that place where there was genuine appreciation for for what we had done and for the fact that we'd found an audience. I mean, right. there was lip service given to that, but it never went too deep beyond that. I don't think. Right. So by 2010, it just ran aground again, and it was. And then Chris had put a band together, and he was really insistent. I'm doing my own thing. That's it. And so, and we said we got to take a few years off because we went from 2005 through 10. Made three records and toured the whole time. We just killed ourselves again. Like I said, all of a sudden we're back in the same hamster wheel where it's just like, keep booking shows. Let's keep playing. Let's keep writing new songs. <laughs> let's go make some records. Let's let's go make another double record. I mean, it was it was productive, but at a at a real cost again. I think to everybody's central nervous system a bit. Yeah. So I saw. It's funny because I saw Chris's band in 2012 here in Nashville, and he was so happy on stage. He was just smiling and. And he walked off stage and he said something about, I was thinking about, you know, do you want a tour next year? And I went, why? What are you talking about? <laughs> like, you're happy. Like, what the, I don't even know who you are. And he goes, no, but let's, And we just started talking. And then, you know, it turned out, so we decided let's tour for 2013. And that tour, in talking about setting it up, there was definitely a look ahead to 2015, just for one reason. 2015 was is 25 years since Shake Your Money Maker. Right. And 2013 was sort of a, dry, we, we approached it with, it's kind of a test tour. Like, we know we can go out and play shows, and we can all go, you know, so we can sell tickets, and everybody can make a living this year, and that's all awesome, and let's take advantage of that. Why wouldn't we? But the thinking was also, let's go see if we really want to keep doing this. Let's see if we can get along, and let's see if we can come up with some new tunes, and let's just, everyone step back a little bit and try to just appreciate it and get some distance and not make everything so precious. And, you know, that was sort of the mindset going into it, which is let's go do this and, and see if we can get somewhere positive from it. And it started off that way very much. So. And the first, you know, we started in March rehearsing and the first day of rehearsals, there was no fights between the brothers. I think they'd been threatening (laughs) each other with emails every day leading up to it, that I'll kill you. And then, (laughs) They walked in and they just buried the hatchet. And it was like, hey, finally. And we rehearsed and we went to England for a week and came back and started the tour here. And I think we did like 110 or 120 shows that year. And it was not until the very, very end of the year that it seemed like, oh, wait, this is going off the rails again. I think everybody made a decision to just keep their bullshit to themselves and go play shows and let's try to enjoy this. And, And it was also the first tour I think we did where we said, "Okay, let's play Hard to Handle and Remedy and Jealous Again and Wiser Time, like all the songs that everybody knows and soul singing, like we said, we got to play them every night. Like there are a lot of fans who don't care to hear B-sides from 1997. Like (laughs) let's give everybody what they want. Like let's go out and be smart and play all the songs everybody knows, and that still leaves at least two-thirds of the set so we can go jerk off on ourselves all we want. You know, like (laughs) we found this pretty decent balance of those things. And so the tour was a huge success, and the promoters loved it, and it made it seem like everybody was happy. So the setup for 2015 was, was, was inherent. Like, okay, great. And we, had a, we, we spent a lot of that year planning, which we'd never done. Like, we were having conversations totally unprompted by Pete, our manager, about, hey, in 15 we could do this and we could do that. We, could, we, just need, if we, you know, we had a few song ideas, and we were like, well, let's just put, like, we don't need to make an album. Let's just release an EP of four new songs. And if we want to make it an album, then slap on a bunch of B-sides we never released. I mean, we don't have to pretend it's, we're not going to go do Southern Harmony again or, or Amorica again. Let's just put out some new tunes and just give people something new, but we can tour and it can be an anniversary tour. And we kind of summed this whole thing up with 2015, 25 years, not not a Shake Your Money Maker celebration, but 25 years of the Black Crows celebration and probably a farewell tour but if not, then we can do. You know, the idea was what you said, which is every couple of years we can get together and go out for the summer and go play music. And, yeah. And there's no pressure to release new records and keep up with anything. And that was where our heads were for the whole year until the very end. And, um, you know, about two months before that tour ended, the brothers, uh, their dad passed away, Stan Robinson. And that brought them very, very close together, like, like to at a level that none of us had ever seen or even imagined possible. And within a month or so of his passing, it seemed like, uh, along with that went all of Chris's notion that he needed to stay around his brother anymore Mm. or, or the black crows for that matter. Yeah. And so by the time the tour ended, it was very obvious, like, Oh, we just, this thing just went away again. Wow. That's weird. It was so good for about eight months. Um, but then we got home at the end of 2013 and and then it was still time in the spring of 14 the idea you know the conversations well are we doing next year or not because if we are you know our manager Pete's like hey guys if we're going to go out in 15 we have to commit now because i got to start putting holds on venues and like you know strategy and planning to do it you know in, in the most efficient manner give me a, give me as much lead time as you can so i'm not chasing my tail you know 6 months from now trying to get a tour together and, and at that point, so it was early in 2014, Chris wrote an email to Rich and, and with all these new terms for what it would take for him to stay in the band. Um, and Rich put out a press release like a year later, issued a statement explaining what had happened, and I believe Chris has denied that that's what happened, but that is exactly what happened. He emailed and demanded uh, the lion's share of all profits moving forward, or he wouldn't be in the band anymore.
0: When he was going to take away your stake in the band, Right.
1: Yeah, he's taken my stake. He wanted me out of the band because, uh, I, I, for who knows what reason. I mean, he was—I don't think he was a fan of the fact that I got a radio show going.
0: Yeah, wasn't he? was there something because, cause like your shows on Fox Sports, and he conflated that with Fox News or something. Well,
1: he said that's the one thing he said to me. It was funny. I got picked up by Fox Sports Radio like right. in January, or December of thirteen. I, the guy says, do you want to go five days a week? And I was like, you know, I went from like zero to a hundred. I had a little local show on a tiny station, and suddenly I'm like I got an offer to be syndicated in like 180 stations and I sent the they put a press release together and I sent it to Pete and Rich and Chris and Pete and Rich immediately were like holy shit congratulations <laughs> and I got nothing back from Chris and I was like yeah I figured
0: well and like and just so people there's not, there's no connection between Fox Sports and and fox news that they're too no, and in
1: fact fox sports radio isn't even a part of fox sports fox sports radio right. it's premier radio it's an entirely separate company
0: so and i think most people know that <laughs> but
1: but but well but. i wouldn't care if it regardless right 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 talk show where i have a lot of musicians come on exactly um but the but whatever the reason was and and chris would certainly give you his version of all these events and probably you know thinks it all made sense to him um the one time he ever mentioned it to, we, we did a couple of private events in January of 14. We did like a couple of, you know, corporate gigs and I showed up for the first one was in Vegas and I walked into the room. I've landed and I go right to the place we're playing in this casino. And, and it was funny because like everybody jumps up and like, dude, that's amazing. Congratulations. Like everybody in, in the room. And, and he just looked at me and goes, what are you going to have Bill O'Reilly on your fucking show? (laughs) (laughs) And I said, I hope so. He's huge. (laughs) Now, For the record, I would never in a billion years have fucking Bill O'Reilly on a show that I was on. But the point was, don't fuck yourself. Get over it. Right. Um, And then we did a few of those gigs. And then the last one we played was in Boston in February, I think. And we shared a ride to the airport the next morning. And it was me and the two brothers in this car. And I got out first to go to my airline. And... I said, all right, check you guys. See you. And I looked back, and Rich goes, okay, see you, man. And I looked at Chris, and he didn't say anything. And we all know each other so fucking well. We can't hide a thing from each other. And he was just staring at me with this weird look on his face. And I went, okay, then. And I got out of the car, and he just had this look, and I knew exactly what it meant. And it's funny because he was still in the car with Rich, and I texted Rich, and I said, he's about to blow this whole fucking thing up, isn't he? <laughs> And Rich goes, "What do you mean?" I said, "Look at him." And and we had this whole text exchange while he's sitting next to Chris because I just knew. And then like a week later this email comes and I was like, "Yeah, that figures." So what he said was he wanted me out of the band. Yeah. And if Rich insisted that'd be fine but I could come back for a salary. Okay. And then to Rich he said, "So, you know, you have a you have a thing where the 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 three original members, you know, it's a biz- the other guys in the band were all uh, you know, well compensated, but weren't weren't partners, right? Like, you know, there were there were employees, and then there were partners. The three original guys, you know, what we took uh, the money that was left at the end of the day went three ways, right? And so he said, I take. He said, you know, I'm taking Steve's third, and then to Rich's third. He said, and I want seventy five percent of your third.
0: Jeez, Louise. Which, if you
1: add the numbers up, it basically means. I'm going from 33
2: to 92%, right. or
1: I'm not coming back. And, and of course, the response from, you know, he emailed that to Rich, and then you know, Rich calls me, he's like, oh, did you get this? I was like, no, I didn't hear anything. And you- so I think the re- response from Rich was literally wrote back, and, and it was a really lengthy email explaining his thinking. And Rich just goes, we reject your terms. And that was the end of the Black Crows. They've yeah. never spoken since. I've never spoken to Chris since. Can't imagine I ever would. I saw him at the Nashville airport once, and he was hightailing it uh, away from me.
0: I mean, from what I know about you, I know you're not like a backward-looking person. Like you've got a lot of stuff going on in your life now. Like this conversation, notwithstanding, I right. you, normally you don't talk about this kind of stuff. But like, I mean. It, do you miss the Black Crows? I mean, what is your degree of regret about how it, how my, it ended? Th-
1: this is—it's uh, funny. I mean, a lot of people say that. Here, this is as—I as, I can't be more honest, and and I, you know, I try to—I spend a lot of time with certain conversations. You try to buffer things because it can sound harsh or whatever. And a lot of the things I say on Twitter or on my radio show, I I'd say a lot of things where I'm just speaking as myself, as if I know the person I'm talking to, and it can come across as really bitter or harsh and the reality is i'm not bitter at all i think the black crows overachieved for fucking ever yeah there was no reason on earth that those people should have had that run i mean we just don't we're not made of that stuff you know i mean we're too self-destructive and especially all together there were tremendous strengths and there were tremendous weaknesses within that band and the band never learned how to ignore the weaknesses and focus on its strengths it never did that except for it never did that intentionally it happened occasionally and I think it's real obvious when it happened. You know what I mean? And the rest of the time, it was a real battle. So in the the whole grand scheme of things, I just think it was fucking great. I mean, it was a really good band. When the band sucked, it was still a good band. And when the band was good, it was a great band. So I'm thrilled with that. Yeah. I do my regret. And, and by the way, the stuff about Chris and saying all that, look, like you said earlier, we've had huge ups and downs. I mean, he and I have had conversations in the past for hours, uh, and 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 I walk out of a room connected as a blood brother, and the next day he's trying to, he's telling me to go fuck myself, or vice versa. <laughs> right, that's right. life in a band and life with a friend, and you know we had been roommates, and then we're all these different, we're all the, we played all very different roles in each other's lives the way you do in thirty years. Right. So I, I don't like when I say that stuff about he wanted me out of the band. I, I it's, I don't care. It's like it, because hey, it wouldn't have happened. And that's just how he felt the day that email was written. I mean, he would not sit here today and tell you, Steve sucks. He's no good at drumming. Like, there was a line about something about my drumming in that email. And I'm like, I don't even, it doesn't, it's water off a duck's back. It's, you know, when when someone talks as much as he does, you start filtering the shit out pretty quick, you know? Right. So I don't say those things in a way of, oh, my God, it ripped my guts out. It's just what it was. It's It's that simple. It's the truth. Therefore, I don't really have a problem telling you that. Right. My only true regret, I don't miss the Black Crows on any level. I don't miss being in that band at all. Because when it was fun, it was not really that fun. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, a good day in the Black Crows was just a day that wasn't a bad day. That's that's <laughs> that's really how I see it. Like,
2: yeah.
1: we had great moments and real highs and good, you know, high five. And then within five minutes, the mood would turn again. It was just, it's just the nature of those people all together. So I don't miss that on any level. I've had you know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I've am i got another band that I play in that's not nearly as busy as the Black Crows ever were. And I love that music and I love those people. I have a, a radio show and I also have a family and I have a, you know, I've got all these things in my life that are awesome. So I So the idea of The Black Crows, like if you said to me, you guys are going back on the road. I mean, I I couldn't do the last thing I would ever want to do. I mean, literally, I say that because it's just it's good and it's over and it should be over. Yeah. The one regret is we should have done that last tour because the mindset of that tour was to say thank you to everybody. And the idea was, after all this time, what's wrong with going out and doing a final tour to say thanks and Here's, this was everybody's gold watch sort of thing. Like the band wasn't going to – those guys didn't want to write songs together anymore, or Chris did not want to write songs with his brother anymore. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't a future for the Black Crows in that way. It was just there was an opportunity to go out and, and commit to an idea and play shows. And when it was over, shake hands and say, hey, fucking man, we did it. We, we, we went out and look at all we accomplished and go have a great life. God bless you. And, yeah. and and I wish we had done that. I really wish we had that. Um, but we don't. But the, but again, it's that's four years on now. So it's like, and it's not going to happen. So yeah. say la vie.
0: You know, I, was just, I just had a memory of you texting me on that last tour. I think you were playing in San Francisco, I think was the end of that tour. Yeah. And you said, you should come out here. And it just occurred to me, you're probably signaling me that, hey. <laughs> I
1: think I have a feeling I was. <laughs> this might yeah. be the
0: last time you yeah. could see us. Um, Steve. I know I kept you longer than I said I would. So thank you so much, man, for coming on. It, it's fascinating. I could talk to you for hours about this, but we don't have
2: hours. Uh,
1: sure, man. No problem. But I appreciate I'm, uh, it. And, and, I, and I always feel like I, I if I'm going to say one more thing, if there's anybody listening to this who's a crazy Black Crows fan, it, I am eternally uh, appreciative because uh, the one thing that we didn't talk about was early on in our run as a band, even when we were on our first album and we were playing the same set every night, we started finding people that came to a lot of shows and and it, it was it's never been lost on me that that's kind of the whole that's what made us happen is that people really dug the music and loved it and i and i i have conversations with people often enough where they talk about like i said if i'm talking about the band in a good or bad way it's just the same as anybody else talking about their uh you know their job or their or their old rela- it's like i right. the black Coast to me is it's the greatest job I ever had. It's the worst job I ever had. It's my worst high school girlfriend. <laughs> it's my wife now. It's my children. I mean, it's like literally every experience I've ever had is was through that filter. So it's not like I can ever... I don't separate those things. It's all totally cool. It was great. It was fucking awesome. It should have ended differently. But then again, that's kind of how most bands go. Right. Right. You know what I mean? I, I don't... I don't feel the need to issue a blanket statement, but I want to because I do I, I am sensitive to the fact that, that we all say things about the band and it's like it hurts people's feelings sometimes. They don't want to <laughs> you know, they don't want to hear you say what you really think. Right. And I I'm I'm just past the point of not saying what I think, but I also understand and appreciate the fact that it that means a whole lot to a lot of people. Right.
0: And to me that was it's part of what makes you guys so interesting to me. So like, I kind of like this. I mean, I, I, I'm sad that you had to go through this, but like as a story, oh, no, it was, it's it, fascinating it, to me because it's, you know, it's just like, uh, you know, I think of you as like the American Oasis or that, or Oasis is the British Black Crows. Like, mm-hmm. It's the same sort of thing where it's great music and then there's always this tension going on. That well, it's is funny
1: just... that you note because when we did tour of the Oasis, we had a fucking blast. Right. I mean, I've never enjoyed a month in the presence of another band more than I did with Oasis and and they would say the same about us. We, that was a month long, just love. It was so funny, like that those bands came together. And I guess we did recognize an awful lot in each other because we had a great time.
2: Yeah. I mean,
1: no, no pressure, no, anything. It was just fun. (laughs) And, and of course, Noel Gallagher, the greatest interview in rock history. He's like that all the time. So I'm just endlessly laughing my ass off if I'm around him.
0: Yeah, and I love that these two combative bands came together and they loved each other. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's like course. fuck and... you. It's like fuck you to every <laughs> other band, but like oh, we're yeah. together. Oh yeah, you we're of
1: brothers. <laughs> That's how it had to be. And, and there's the fu- when we we played Glastonbury in ninety, 90- we headlined Glastonbury in ninety three, and then in ninety five we went back and we were second on the bill to this new English band Oasis, and we were like wait a minute, we headlined two years ago, who the fuck is Oasis? You know, like, what is this? And by the time the summer showed up and we were there, they were, you know, it was Oasis. They were massive. Yeah. But I remember we were playing our set, and I looked over on the side of the stage, and I saw Noel. I was like, that's one of those Oasis guys. You know, like, wonder what he's thinking. You know, like, what the fuck? You know, because, of course, you got to kind of act cool, and you you know, it's the anchorman fight all over again, you know, <laughs> what's the weatherman doing here, you know, from channel two? and so and then we walked off stage and then they were off in their area, and then they went up on their stage for their set, and I go up and I'm watching them play, and I'm thinking to myself, yeah, yeah, that's okay I mean I hear it, but they didn't they didn't they didn't blow me away as like great musicians, and they weren't like grooving at all. it was, it was the place was going fucking crazy. And, 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 I, and Liam's whole thing, I had to admit, I was like, God, that dude, holy shit, the way he's just standing there glaring at the audience. And I was like, what the fuck is that guy? It was, it was great. I mean, I saw it, and I appreciate it, but I was also I was pissed that we weren't headlining probably, but I heard, I heard Liam say, you know, thanks for coming out and I'm not going to try the, the, the Mank accent, but he said, you know, I'm, it's nice to get that silly Southern shit out of the way so you can hear some real music. Oh, and I went right back. This is what I did. And by the way, I'm wearing a three piece red shark skin suit at the time and, and motorcycle boots. And I'm six, three already. So I look like a giant weirdo. Anyway, looking back, I go to my dressing room and I grab a bottle of Jack Daniels and I walk over to their dressing room and I sit down and start to drink and I'm waiting for them and I'm literally waiting to beat the shit out of Liam Gallagher. <laughs> and the more I sit, and I'm just sipping that, I'm listening to their set, and it's like a trailer backstage. And no one tried to stop me from going in. No one's doing I just walked in, and I sat down. I'm eating some of their chips. <laughs> I'm just like, I'm fucking killing these people. And I was already obviously juiced when this whole episode started. <laughs> and so my tour manager comes in. He's like, hey, you know, we got to make that ferry to get across the channel. We've got to go soon. And I said, no, no, I'll fly tomorrow. He's like, what are you talking about? I, I got to kill this kid. And I'm dead. And this is the funniest thing. Like, I was totally serious. Like, I, I, I look back and I just laugh at myself. But I was dead serious. I was like, I'm gonna beat the singer of Oasis in his own dressing room to teach him and everyone else on earth a lesson. Like, like that made sense to me at the time. So obviously I wasn't a little drunk. I, I was really drunk. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and so I'm just continuing to drink and I'm waiting and I'm waiting and I'm waiting. And then finally, like even Robinson comes in, he's like, dude, we got to go. Come on, beat him up later. You know, it's one of those. And it's one of the few times where I'm literally the one, of course, the one time I want to really start shit, no one's with me. And I'm like, <laughs> and so I kicked over a table and broke a. I I did whatever I did and I left and I was fucking furious the whole time. And then, you know, the next day I just have a hangover and, well, fuck! I probably shouldn't have done that. So that's 1995, 2001. We're they we do the tour with Oasis, and we had met them briefly a couple times, much you know, like in '99 or 2000. I guess Noel had come to a few gigs, so we had met him. And we get to we're we're in LA at the Greek Theater. It's like the second or third night of the Oasis tour, and after the gig, we're all hanging. It's our first sort of communal hang where we're all telling stories. And somebody said, hey, did you guys know Steve almost killed you at Glastonbury? And they're like, what? <laughs> and so I told them that story. And, of course, they had no idea that any of that had happened. And during, while I was waiting on them, a couple of their crew guys had walked into their, you know, they just run in to go get more water or whatever. And I said, get the fuck out of here. And they're like, uh, I think you're in the wrong place, mate. And I'm like, you're in the wrong place. You know, like, I was not having it, you know. So, but it had obviously never gotten back to the band. So this is now six years later, and I tell Noel that story. And of course, he's just laughing so hard. And I'm like, yeah, it's funny now. He goes, no, here's the funny thing. He goes, there's no fucking way Liam ever said that. And I said, I heard him. He goes, I promise you, I promise you that motherfucker had never even heard of the Black Crows in 1995. He goes, and there's no way in hell he would have slagged you off. He goes, we watched your set and we were like, holy fucking shit, that band's amazing. He goes, I, we all have talked about it. you know, like, and, and, so, and so we're laughing about it, and then Liam comes in, and Noel goes, hey, when did you first hear the Black Crows? So he goes, Glastonbury, in you 95. Know. <laughs> and he goes, what did you think? He goes, oh, I fucking top, man. You guys are amazing. <laughs> and I said, did you fucking slag us off from the stage? And he looks at me and goes, what? No. <laughs> and I was like, okay, never mind. I'm over it. Beef, <laughs> beef buried here. Thank you, gentlemen.
0: Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you for telling that story. You've you've made my day by telling that.
1: (laughs) Those are good. Those were heady times.
0: Yeah, man. Steve, thank you so much, man. It's always a pleasure.
1: Always a pleasure, brother.
0: All right, man. Take care.
1: See you.
0: All right. That was Steve Gorman, my friend, a fabulous drummer, member of the Black Crows. That was a fun conversation. I I don't know if you could tell I was smiling ear to ear during the entire conversation. Like, Steve's a great storyteller. Uh, he's had a great career. I I love hearing him talk. I just want to hear him go off. You know, there's nobody like him, man. I love Steve so much. Um, guys, thank you so much for listening uh, to this week's episode. And again, I want to remind you uh, about our sponsors. Of course, we have ZipRecruiter, uh, and if you want to take advantage of that, uh, if you want to post some jobs there for free, you just go to ZipRecruiter.com/slash celebration. Uh, And then uh, there's our old friends at Harry's. And I use Harry's, and they're great razors. And uh, you can get your free trial set again. You get your razor handle, five-blade cartridge, and shave gel. You just go to harrys.com backslash rock to take advantage of that. And if you go to our sponsors, you will, of course, help the podcast. So we always appreciate that. Uh, Guys, thank you again for listening uh, to this week's episode of Celebration Rock. Uh, We will uh, talk to you again next week.